Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode is Fred McPherson of Spectre. Uh, this is a great chat. Um, I've never met Fred before and, uh, and we have a, a, a really good chat about um, growing up in and around London. Uh, and do you know what? I'm not going to give any more away because that's the reason that you, you, you tune in. You want to listen to the podcast, not me telling you Fred's story. Uh, before we get on with that, I'll just say uh, thank you to the Distraction Pieces Network and uh, 76 for producing this. If this is your first time listening to Off The Beaten Track, please go and have a look in the back catalogue because you'll see uh, many, many, many episodes of me chatting creative journeys with musicians, producers, artists, actors, uh, and much more. So go and have a look in the, uh, the back catalogue, please. Um, better still, just subscribe. If that's not enough uh, and you want more, then there's also a bundle of episodes and a standalone weekly episode released on my Patreon page. So Off The Beaten Track has a Patreon, so you can go up and sign up to that and support the podcast there. Um, but let's get back to today's uh, job at hand, which is introducing my smashing guest. Please enjoy Off The Beaten Track podcast with Fred McPherson of Spectre. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing www.sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. And in addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairware Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to 
sosclothing.co.uk. Do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beat & Track Podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beat & Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Okay, we're recording. We are at the WeWork building in, uh, in East London. Joining me today, Fred McPherson from Spectre. Hello, thanks All for right. having me. You good? Yeah, I'm excited to be on a podcast. I always waiting for people to ask me to be on a podcast. Is this, is this your first one? It's not my it's my first one in recent times. Okay. Um, maybe I'm just uh, too boring or too offensive, or offensively boring. We'll find out. Or boringly offensive. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> See how this pans out. We'll soon know if you're still listening in an hour. <laughs> then. What thank other you. podcast did you do? Um, I can't even remember off the top of my head. I don't know their names. People talking about rubbish. Yeah. Including uh, me. But I'd, yeah, podcasts, are, I've only recently discovered them. I'm a bit behind the curb. Do you listen to them? I do n- now because I, tr- I sometimes find listening to music a bit stressful. Um, if, you're, if you're working on music all day, mm-hmm. sometimes then listening to it after, it just can start to sound... Like noise. Listening to your own stuff back or listening to... Other people's. I try to listen to our music as little as possible. Yeah. Um, unless I'm having to sing it. Yeah. Um, but sometimes you just hear loud noise in your ear, whatever the yeah. whatever the type of thing. Um, sometimes just people talking. Okay. It's preferred. Well, let's get things rolling with track one. Song with the greatest intro. Yes. Do I say what I picked? Yes, please. Um, Kanye West, Runaway. And I've picked this one because I think any song that can be recognised from one note, Mm -hmm. that's got to be a good intro. That's one that someone can play a single note on a piano and even if it's in the wrong key, if they keep playing it, it's it makes it makes me think of it. Yeah. There's not many other songs I can think of that a single note. There's there's lots of songs with great cool intros, and I was thinking about things like you know King Crimson or mm-hmm. um, really over the top stuff that I listened to growing up. You know the Mars Volta or even Genesis or Emerson Lake and Palmer. Yeah. These huge explosions or like preposterous things because intros have kind of died a bit and maybe it was radio or things like Spotify that I feel like intros are a bit shorter in general now. That's good because it's kind of, I I like to ask guests this and especially people that that, that make music as well. Um, So looking back at, as I've sort of prepped this and and looked back at your kind of uh, spectrum and bands that you was in previous to this, a lot of that kind of happened on the kind of cusp initially of like MySpace and yeah. then moving forwards through the kind of a big evolution in, in, in social media yeah. and the way that people, you know, listen to music. Do you, what, what considerations do you have when you're writing a, an intro and has it changed over the years? It's definitely changed. I mean, 
in my first band, we weren't probably even sure what an intro was. Right. Definitely didn't know phrases like middle eight. And then we were annoyed that our songs didn't sound like other people's. Second band I was in, we definitely knew what an intro was and a verse. We didn't really know what a chorus was. Um, and then <laughs> with, with Spectre, it was, it was me thinking I'd cracked the code, the code right. being very straightforward song structures that usually follow intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, solo if you're lucky or it's someone's birthday. Uh, and then the final chorus, probably a double chorus, depending on how long you're up to at that mm. point. But I'd imagine off the top of my head, most of our intros are either, you know, eight bars, 16 bars. Um, I'm, I'm wanting to make it sound like I know about stuff like bars. I probably wouldn't even be able to tell you if we listened back to one, but yeah. you know, 20 seconds, then the vocal starting yeah, or the vocal starting right away. Um, but then a lot of my favorite music, it's all about how the song establishes itself and and then that can be almost more iconic i remember i mean this song the first time i heard it was it was they did a live performance at the mtv awards and it was just kanye on stage with an mpc just kind of one finger one yeah. button and yeah i guess like we were saying it doesn't have to be anything you can sometimes have something very special with very little, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the albums that really started hitting me at a certain age, stuff like the Strokes, Is This It? Yeah. Um, the, it all just, the way it comes in, the first verse, the, 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 just like, boom, 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 boom. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if yeah. I'm allowed to sing it, but we're not allowed to have versions of the songs on here, probably for the best, but, sometimes you can remember the intro more than any other bit. And also it's the first bit you hear. So people talk about, oh, where I was when I first heard this. It's also your expectations for what a song will be or could be. Mm -hmm. um, the first time you hear an intro is the last time you won't know how that song goes. Yeah. And is almost the only point where a bit like uh, the beginning of a film or the beginning of a book, your imagination is running wild. Mm -hmm. It could go anywhere. Yeah. Um, that's a very long answer to a short question, but... It's a good answer. Um, in, in, in short, intros de have, have definitely changed. And also, they, there was a point where radio edits were a big thing and people made shorter versions for the radio. Now we've got Spotify and people want all, they, all the plays in, on one version of the song you're less likely to have a radio edit sure. out there because they don't want their hit song split into two by half the people listening to the radio edit and half the people listening to the main song and i feel like especially because people are hyper aware of getting their songs playlisted on spotify i think people are definitely thinking okay well we want the vocal to come in within the first 15 yeah. seconds or the, maybe even the chorus within the first minute or 30 seconds did you have similar considerations in regards to sort of radio players when, when Spectre sort of started not radio play per se because I've never been a, I was never a massive listener to the radio but there's always bywords for whatever are the most important mediums media should I say and platforms at any given point so then it was you know people talking about 
Radio One, for example. Now it's people talking about Spotify and Apple Music, yeah. and and radio is very second to those. Yeah. And I'm sure in the future it might be something else. So it, it's not that for me any of those individual ways of hearing music are super important. But I was when we started this band, I was trying to you know engage with the alchemy of pop music sure. and and i re and it was one of those things that for a second i thought i had the you know the magic beans or whatever in my hand so i was like you, you this is it well I, I think you crack the code and then you realize that that's not that's not that's not your 10,000th hour yeah. that's your, then your first hour yeah. so once i got to the point where i could structure a song knew what a key was knew vaguely where i could what key I could sing in and lyrics that could be fit to a melody. I, I realize now that's not the end of the path. Yeah. That's day one at the office. Yeah. You know, that's, that's your internship. Sure. Um, so, but I, I like, I do, I definitely subscribe to the idea that pop, whatever that means to anyone, it's, it's about, simplifying but simplifying doesn't necessarily mean dumbing down yeah. and a quote i always say about songwriting which is my favorite quote um about it is rivers cuomo from weezer said songwriting is a lot easier than you think it is and that's what makes it so hard yeah and that perfectly sums it up yeah. really um but yeah intros they seem to be getting shorter and shorter and I'm sure it'll go the other way at some point, and hopefully yeah. they'll start getting longer and longer again. Okay. Track two, Fred. The first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you? Yes. This is uh, Michael Nyman, Chasing Sheep is Best Left to Shepherds, from the Draftsman's Contract soundtrack, a film I've never seen that I think involves lots of sex, which is ironic because I'd probably first heard this song when I was four or something I definitely sure. wasn't watching a film with loads of sex um, my parents had two from my memory they had two cassette tapes in our car one was this soundtrack and the other one was a kind of synth pop compilation called Club for Heroes that's worth looking up I think the, the compilation exists on Spotify and stuff and that had you know Ultravox Vienna Spandau Ballet would have been the soundtrack to the Club for Heroes, Steve Strange's club from. Oh, the that 80s. must have been what it yeah. was, right? And it was so it was basically yeah. all it was all the hits from that yeah. era, and my parents would just alternate these two tapes. Yeah. So the first bands I heard were all those um, new wavy synth bands, and then, or alternatively, this um, very illustrious orchestral you know a bit of music that's been used in lots of things yeah since but i remembered at, at the time it's a very well written piece of music that if if you haven't heard it or if you have heard it hits in a certain way and speaking of intros it kind of all blasts in at the same time with the very famous motif would not want to sound too pretentious yeah. and and i think i was a bit it's not spoil I don't, that's not the right word but in terms of the music i heard growing up there wasn't my parents were into music but they weren't 
they weren't crate diggers. Sure. So it would be stuff like the Beatles. Yeah. ABBA, you know, compilations. Yeah. Bob Dylan. But that meant that that was the level for where music was in my head. Yeah. I was like, okay, well, this is pieces of music like uh, Michael Nyman or Ultravox Vienna or the Beatles. I was like, so this is this is the ground floor of music. You know, the more you hear, you realize that a lot of those artists and songs, especially songs that make compilations or anomalies or anomalies in the artist's career or in the Beatles' case, almost anomalies in history, whether you like them or not, mm -hmm. in terms of what they achieved. Um, so it was kind of like being, uh, you know, like a Wagyu beef cow fed exclusively on high quality grain or something. Mm -hmm. But I say high quality, it was more just, it was a concentrated sure. diet of relatively yeah. uh, limited spectrum of music um, that was all quite emotionally impactful, but also quite rich. How? Emotionally how? Um... I guess because, well, it'd be hard to work out now the Im impact of hearing that music age four, but probably the first time I started doing regular car journeys was on the way to primary school. So it would be that I imagine I was asso associating the music with a, a very transitional stage. And, this, and those... That, was, that kind of music it was of quite epic proportions that then probably consciously or subconsciously I was attaching to these changes in life which gave it all quite an overwrought feel you know yeah. it's it, it's hard not to listen to a, a piece of music like this Michael Nyman one and it not give a certain sense of occasion yeah. um, even if that's just going to school to kind of you know throw some sand around and wet yourself or whatever you yeah. do it for. Um, but it it definitely, it drew me in. I didn't know what music was. I can't, I, I can't, my earliest memories of music are all from in the car or maybe singing songs at church or at, at school. Um, Were you fascinated with it? I wouldn't say I was fascinated with it, actually, even though that's kind of the wrong... That's probably the wrong th thing to say as a musician. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't till years later that I felt personally like I could bring anything to it. I mean, I barely feel that way now, but I think it was, I didn't associate it with something that people actually did. And especially with the, the synth pop bands, they were quite otherworldly, big productions, mm -hmm. um, and very far away from the music of that era. Well, you know, when I was a bit older, growing up in the '90s, I probably became aware of bands like Oasis mm -hmm. or Blur or Supergrass or whatever. And that was a that's a world away from the really, uh, you know, Blamange yeah. or Culture Club yeah. or those those kind of things i think it, it made with the intense over-the-top classical music and the intense over-the-top pop music it kind of cartoonified yeah my understanding of of music and made it seem more beyond the realm of possibility and then on a local scale we had you know going to a church of england 
church school relatively dreary songs unless you know the highlight would be like an australian evangelical guy coming in with an acoustic guitar and that was about as close to rock and roll as yeah things were going to get and actually later on when i was probably eight nine ten i started voluntarily going to a few more churchy things drawn to that kind of um slightly cheesy worship music because just because it was high energy and, and, and otherwise it was uh, it was people learning violins and obviously you know eight-year-olds playing violins is yeah. about as unpleasant a sound as you could possibly hope yeah. to hear which meant when it was that or an australian with an acoustic guitar even if he was telling you you know not to do drugs and have sex yeah. it was still seemed quite yeah. upbeat and fun yeah, of course Cheesy Worship's a good name for the album as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Track three, Fred. Let's let's move forward then whilst we, whilst we uh, have, have touched on school. And it's the song that reminds you of your time at school. Yes. Well, this one, I think, is this one... Is that White Stripes? Mm-hmm. Hotel Yorba. This, this is actually kind of directly connects to the Aussie and the acoustic guitar. Oh, really? Well, not... Well, indirectly, should I say. This was the first song that any of my friends learned to play on guitar. First song I learned to play on guitar. Probably the only song I can still play on guitar. Um, I think the chords are something like A, D, and E, which prob- or C, F, and G, which to this day are probably still chords. Yeah. Uh, changes we use writing. Um, I remember... Lots of things changed around 2000, 2001. I'd have been about 13. Um, My parents got cable TV for the first time, which meant we suddenly had access to MTV, MTV2, VH1. There was Zane Lowe's Gonzo show on MTV2, which I watched religiously at the time and then later ended up working for, which was a very kind of fortuitous... Um, lucky chain of events but then also it was when XFM started and it was still mm-hmm. quite underground you had Zane Lowe on XFM evenings and it was still completely anarchic and ho- felt very homemade very yeah, real and, and there had never been a radio station that appealed to me up until that point and then obviously at the same time you started just having all these cool bands coming out of nowhere I was aware of stuff like Travis and Top Loader and that kind of thing uh, but there was no one I'd been slightly too young for Oasis or Pulp but this was the time where all these bands just came out simultaneously sure. and, and the White Blood Cells that White Stripes album was the first one I knew of theirs obviously they had two that came out before mm-hmm. but this must have been 2001 and that song even though it's not one of my favourite songs Actually, I never listened to it now. I, I, it's, I almost, I'd, same as the first couple of Strokes albums, it's a bit too, I find it too raw to listen to because I listened to it so much then that it, it feels like it occupies a place in the past. And even when bands like the Strokes play and friends say, oh, let's go and watch, it always feels a bit, never feels quite right because so many of those, those experiences growing up are so... Um, soundtrack by those moments that 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 they feel completely synonymous to listen to the music's almost like going back uh time travel or something and as for hotel yorba it was 
first song that my first band learned to play, the, the only song we could play for a while, and all our early songs were just trying to do songs like that using the same yeah. chords. I remember even going out busking with my with the two guys who we'd made the first band with near um, like Natural History Museum and playing probably a horrendous version of Hotel Yorba um, repeatedly to very little success on the coin front. I think even people who did, people didn't even feel sorry for us because they're just like, <laughs> who are these <laughs> ugly uh, teenagers massacring a song that wasn't even a hit necessarily. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, Jack White was a very interesting character again so not someone i listen to much now but they were a great entry point to a lot of things because you'd go to their gigs and they're doing blues covers and all sorts and through them found music like billy childish and kind of much more raw um punky stuff and it was that you know buying copies of nme religiously and buying albums of well and repeatedly buying albums of pretty much anyone that was on the cover and then being relatively consistently disappointed by the quality. But that was, again, the era... Well, not the era, it was the long era. The, sorry, the last bit of the time where you were buying albums to find out what artists sounded like, yeah. really, or even buying singles. Um, and... This was probably just before... If we had... Some, I think we had stuff... Maybe we got Napster, but our internet connection wasn't strong enough to yeah. do much on that front. So I think I was VHSing um, hours of MTV while I was at school, MTV2, so I could fast forward and watch the songs. Were you obsessing then? That's when I started to obsess, yeah. It was, I mean, it was the first few strokes and white stripes videos, like the Lego one, you know, fell in love with a girl. Um, and Strokes Someday, Is This It? They, they, they did that MTV performance last night, all those early videos. It, it, that was, you know, taping off the TV and rewinding and watching again and again the hives. Then starting going to gigs because you could... Um, they did lots of competitions for gig tickets on, on XFM, which was surprisingly easy to win because I don't mm. think many people were going in for for the competitions or I felt that if, if all my friends a lot of my friends went in for lots of the competitions someone would win gig tickets about once a month and yeah. also seemingly everything don't know if I'm just seeing it through a rosy haze but um, everything with ID was easier and a lot more gigs were 14 plus and that's that's definitely the truth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and you could get in if they if it wasn't fourteen plus, you could get in places with a photocopy of a passport. Yeah, before I think Cameron started cracking down on that stuff, and and my parents, as long as they thought I was was going to a gig, were a bit more lax about. If I said I was going to a party, yeah, they'd be more worried than going sure. to a concert at, at a venue that could be named where you know they might have thought there was security or whatever. So I soon yeah. found that actually going to concerts was the best excuse to yeah. to use. Not that I was lying to them, but generally it just meant getting to go out more. And actually, my mum, I have to thank her, was pretty okay with 
going out on weeknights for for gigs as well because you know you living in London could be home by eleven thirty sure. or whatever or eleven. Um, looking back, because I think growing up I thought she was strict, but actually looking back, there was only one which connects to this that I said at the time I would never forgive her for, and I haven't forgiven her. Um, is I think it was Reading. 2002 where it was a bill that had the strokes white stripes on the same day maybe pulp as well I don't know if, it was the, don't know if the strokes were headlining but they were pretty near the top and the white stripes and then it was Jack it was Julian Casablanca's birthday mm-hmm. and Jack White came on with the strokes and they did New York City Cops and he played the solo and the next week in NME the cover was strokes and stripes unite to rock Reading 02 or something and I just remember it getting that from the shop and thinking I'll never this will never happen again yeah and it did and it didn't happen again I mean you know I got chances to see both bands but those moments by the time you're ever fully aware what's going on the the great moments have already sure passed even to this day I know guys slightly older than me who saw the strokes at the barfly or maybe it's called the monarch then I'm not sure and we'll t- we'll I'll still sit down to listen to them tell stories of something that happened nearly 20 years ago yeah. because that's the closest, you know, that was, everyone has their, the bands of their yeah. era and that one, those, yeah, I couldn't, I, I, again, talking about like being right place, right time or like musically spoiled at the time, I didn't think, I probably just thought, oh, these are cool bands. I, I didn't realize that it was a big deal. I didn't know it would be a band that people would still talk about 20 years later. Sure. And for a lot of the people who are younger than us who came in between, maybe if they were lucky a few years later, they got that with Arctic Monkeys. Mm-hmm. But for the generation younger than them, if you like band music, you know, you wouldn't have necessarily had grown up with an iconic artist until maybe the 1975 or something. And that was over a good five years, six, maybe 10 years later, you know? Yeah, totally agree. So there was that, that was the kind of last instance before a big gap. Also, we were still buying CDs and seven inch records. Yeah. Um, and that was, you could still buy into the culture. I, I feel I've, in some ways, I'm happy for kids now because you can get it all for free. But where if you've if you've saved up your pocket money and if you want to spend a tenner on something, what do you get? Like, what do you maybe a gig ticket if you're lucky, like some eighty quid O2 thing? Because all yeah. the medium sized venues in London or across the UK are closed down. Um, you're not going unlikely. You're going to be buying a CD, and if you are, where are you going to play it? There's value in that journey to go and get in record or your CD yeah. that, that you probably don't get from Spotify but you know I always I'm, whenever these kind of conversations come up I know I'm teetering on being nostalgic yeah. do you know what I mean and it's like you know I've seen people ranting about the Reading and Leeds lineup today and uh, which I believe you're playing yes yeah um, they weren't ranting or raving about Spectre playing it was uh, yeah uh, but and I just thought to myself, I was looking at the people that were ranting about it, and they're all about my age. And I thought, well, you got no place being there anyway. You're forty six. Yeah. What are you doing? And it's like, but then I looked at two of the headliners, and I just thought, well, Rage Against the Machine are in their fifties. Yeah. And I thought, I think Liam Gallagher's a couple of years older than me. Uh, uh, but I, I just, 
yeah, I, I, I struggle to just keep my mouth shut when I see people complaining about music festivals. I think, A, just don't go. Yeah. Or B, go another one. There's fucking yeah, hundreds. Yeah, like, <laughs> Don't let it spoil your day. Hello. I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is, the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So... Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. Tell me a little bit about school. How was it? Did you enjoy it? Uh, I did and enjoy where was it? it. This was in um, in the city, city of London school. It's a boys' school and a girls' school separate and they occasionally try and bring them together to not to not much um success mm-hmm. um it was it was definitely not a bad time and uh, yeah i had fun you know there th- they want it's a, the sort of school where they want to create certain types of people and being right in the city and in, in and amongst commerce and you know corporations and all all that and it's run by the corporation of london i think they they have slightly different priorities probably to um but can't really complain they they did provide a lot of creative opportunities oh really and and well yeah i mean there was access to to things like 
rooms that you could play that were more for say practicing piano or orchestral instruments but that allowed our first band les incompetence that had two three guys from our school and three guys we met at camden school for girls which is a sixth form that also lets in boys um which made for quite a good cross pollination of people i say cross pollination we were all you know white men but um just from slightly different um backgrounds but but by age 15 or 16 we were um we were going to gigs a lot and um chris who is the guitarist in les inc and then later guitarist in spectre for the first few years um once we'd started going to certain types of gigs he got it into his head that we were gonna play gigs and to me i remember the first time he said we're gonna play a gig i was just like no that will never happen we'll die before we play a gig that's not gonna it's impossible why i just didn't believe it was possible was you confident i was confident in every other field i wasn't confident that he was confident he gave me a lot of confidence he was precocious is maybe a better word or um arrogant you know yeah. confident to a fault confident yeah. in the way that probably only you know um privileged white teen men um who go to you know private school can be um but we'd start going to um once we got into the libertines and stuff around that band the I was talking about the professionalism of gigs earlier. That's where we started to see that ebb away. We'd go into a venue in Whitechapel called the Rhythm Factory mm -hmm. where um, the Libertines would play, even if they were selling out the Astoria or Brixton, they would play there mm. often. And if you're on the Libertines message board, which we were, you could basically find out about these gigs. And as long as you could get there in time, because um, they didn't even have good ways of selling tickets online, you could get in, even if it meant getting there at seven and staying till two a.m. till they were on, and it would, but it would often mean you know eight band bills, nine band bills, ridiculous, all all sorts of bands on you know, of that era, the others, the Paddingtons, these like London, well they weren't from London, but Selfish Cunt, Vincent, Vincent and the Villains. I saw lots of bands growing up just through waiting for the Libertines to come on, or then latterly Pete Doherty for later and later or, or then i think you know he when he started doing gigs in his flat mm -hmm. and or other people's flats which i later realized probably drug dealers flats yeah you know you could just you could pay 10 pounds cash or 20 pounds cash to get in and hear him play songs on the acoustic guitar and you'd have 50 kids sitting in the front room all paying 20 quid each were getting a grand cash paying off a drug dealer there'd be another 50 waiting outside these are in blocks you know around here and it's nice work if you can get it <laughs> nice work if you can get it I'd, I'd think people wouldn't be able to get away with it now i'm surprised they could get away with it then mm. I, again that's what i said to my mum. i'm like it's that's where i have to really you your mum would still call you being at gigs at this point yeah exactly but i think she was probably wasn't looking too closely i don't think i was either i've really bought into the whole hey this is all just cool and chill even when you're watching someone who can whose eyes aren't even pointing in the right direction yeah. same direction you know mangling through these songs with everyone singing along again a bit of an aussie with the acoustic guitar vibe um but at that point the lines become 
become blurred because you're like, well, if this is a gig, if this is something that people can pay to do, then this is something we can do. So we would be going to friends' house parties and playing songs on the acoustic guitar in the corner or whatever. And and it's almost like it, it evolved that way from the ground up. And our first gig was actually at the Rhythm Factory. We went in, asked for a gig. They said, have you got a demo? We said, no. And they said, well, come back when you've got a demo. Still that era. Went away, had to borrow a, someone's... Had an inset day or something from school. Had to borrow someone's a drum kit and set it up in my friend's mum's kitchen. It was up the road in Dalston, actually. And then get someone to come and record us on four-track tape. Again, you know, I'm sure sounded terrible. Because it was recorded on four-track tape. The tape was actually... The cassette was what it was recorded on. There were no doubles. Mm-hmm. So, which we didn't think of at the time. It wasn't only our demo. It was the only record of any of us yeah. playing music we had. Took it back to the Rhythm Factory, you know, two weeks later or whatever. I said, here's our tape. And we had to get the drum kit out before the mum came back from home from work though she later told me she wouldn't have cared anyway she'd have been happy but it's funny the sort of things you need you think you need to hide from your parents yeah. at that age um so we went back to the rhythm factory again probably 16 so i couldn't even legally be served alcohol in there gave them this cassette tape and they said oh have you not got it on cd we we're like no this is all all we've got and they said well they listened to it called them probably every night for the next came back or you know or called them a week later they said whilst well, they listened to it they said oh what's the band name all this again turned out they'd lost they lost it i mean why wouldn't they if kids keep coming back and they give you a cassette tape yeah. you the chances are you're not going to be going out of your way to listen to it so they gave us a gig out of guilt um for losing our demo and again the sort of thing that seems completely normal at the time they say we've got you a gig first on Tuesday night um, tickets are seven pounds but we'll give you a five pound guest list of which after you know 50 people have come we'll give you two pounds 50 yeah. of every five pounds which at the time you're like wow yeah that seems like a good deal <laughs> so if we get a hundred people we'll get 50 quid or whatever you yeah. know? and you look back and you realize it's basically pay to play. Yeah, of course. They don't give a shit. There's yeah. no one's going to be there and they you're just providing the audience. Unfortunately, them sort of promoters have dined out on your eagerness to to play. Exactly. I mean? if you've gone and handed them with one demo every night since. They know that you you don't care. You're going to play whatever. Yes. You know, and that's that's when the, you know these sharks still get away with pay to play. Exactly. I mean, and it happens to this day. I still have to tell young bands when they talk about what they're set up for their gigs. I'm like, you know, you'd have you could just book the whole venue and actually make yeah. a profit on it for what they're you're promoting their night and selling all their drinks for yeah. them. But track four. Yeah. So this is kind of in a slightly wrong order here because this is probably the first seed one of the first CDs I got okay so um, this is interesting because I'll let you say what it is yeah uh, so this friend. song is Granddaddy he's simple he's dumb he's the pilot and this is a bit of a of background of the music I was listening to the last music I was listening to before the enemy band started to really penetrate my subconscious for want of a less you erotic term you mentioned Genesis and some quite proggy stuff earlier. Yeah. And 
I mean, I, I think this is a masterpiece, this track. Yeah. Um, and probably the most proggy on that album as well. Yeah, well, well, weirdly, because I loved the album, but only I came to the album later, I first heard this through Trigger Happy TV, yeah. the TV show, and the soundtrack of that. And that was such a great soundtrack. And coming back to the compilations, before I was into bands, I only knew songs or pieces of music from things. Yeah. And the first series of Trick Happy TV had an amazing soundtrack. You know, Gordon Lightfoot, um, Flock of Seagulls, yeah. um, Teardrop Explodes, and, and uh, dun, 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 uh, Elastica. Elastica. So I mean, I, if you do are interested, Dom Jolly has been on this and spoken at length about all the tracks and how they got chosen. Oh, for, I need to listen happened, to that. So right. That's a good listen. So, so again, <laughs> before... I think this was probably 2000, 2001, just on the cusp before I got into it. I didn't really care about bands as individuals or artists. I, I, did, I listened to this not knowing if someone was from the 70s or from, you know, I thought Granddaddy were from 40 mm. years ago at the time. I didn't realize that that was actually one of the more modern tracks yeah. on there. Because again, it sounds, you couldn't put an, a, a out of time, year right? yeah, on right. it. Um, and that was kind of like speaking about what we were saying about the, um, Michael Nyman and the or the synth pop stuff at the beginning. This was, I think, when I started when music was really starting to speak to me, and I couldn't put words to it. It was tr triggering emotional responses, and also, I mean, the first few series of Trigger Happy TV. Obviously, it was comedy, but it it was it had a real tragic sense to it as well. It's interesting that you will hear you will see a guy dressed as a snail crawling across a zebra crossing to robert smith pouring his heart on pictures of you but you know with yes year. and it's it was a very strange kind of balance of comedy with this because it was these songs were there was some beautiful music used on that yeah um that wasn't necessarily what you'd probably time of a comedy you know? no it was and and it just shows how important you know it, how it will change the way something feels or comes across and to and comedy has always been as in to me is part of music because it's one of the core attributes of emotional response and same with tragedy not pers not necessarily that word but i'm just if we if we're using that slightly pretentious terms sadness and funniness are often sort of, you know often funniness is the easiest quickest way to deploy something sad um without having to have someone fully on board or invested in the way that something just that's straight sad would be and so yeah that song in particular i bought that soundtrack on cd um and again just really well curated compilations that now I guess would exist more in playlist form but I was kind of a, a sucker for compilations because I kind of thought you're getting more for your money uh, even though you get one, one song by each artist but you're getting to hear all these different artists and even though for then probably I didn't hear the whole Granddaddy album which is a, a great great album till a couple of years later I listened to that CD slavishly and it, yeah even bands something like flock of seagulls i didn't come back to for a decade but just one song on there that i'd listen to again and again so that was just the first that was just when i was first starting to buy cds and i didn't necessarily have a taste per se but i was starting to 
music was beginning to make me feel things and it was set to the some of the imagery of trigger happy tv you know that was the kind of thing that was i don't know where we were at i don't know if we'd if 9-11 for example had happened yet but it was a funny time the beginning of a new millennium that and we weren't i think we were still at the end of what felt like this kind of boom phase from new labor and this this belief in the future mm-hmm. and i think stuff like trigger happy tv I don't know what year The Office came out, later probably. But you, there started to be a bit of a sense of foreboding in the and um, of the kind of depression Definitely. to come. Yeah, I agree. Um, and maybe that was feeling a bit of that. So, early gigs done from the Rhythm Factory. Um, I want to know about clubbing. And and from from your song choices, well, like it was indie clubbing. Yeah, I mean, I did get round to some real clubbing later, but that was many years later. To me, I, it it was I was used to going to clubs that played bands. But again, we were we would spoilt for choice. Um, we had White Heat on a Monday in London, Trash on a Tuesday. Queens of Noise, Club Night in Camden on a Friday, Frog, later Push on a Saturday with with a live band every week that had, you know, Razor Light, Block Party, Hope of the States and Future had something like in their opening month. They are that, a, a high quality band every week. Um, so we could, there was a lot going on um, as much as you wanted, when you wanted. And, I didn't drink in my teenage years. Um, really? Yeah, not until I was 23, actually, um, which I don't even remember how or why that came about as a choice. But it meant... To start drinking or not drinking? To to to, to not start. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why, because all my f- friends did. I think it was seeing, like, early um, people, you know, being so pissed and, like, being sick on themselves. It It, it didn't... For some reason, appeal <laughs> didn't appeal. I think maybe because I was confident and not like I was already quite. I already, I think, felt acted a lot. What a lot of people did when they were drunk, I was already quite loud and annoying, and would talk to strangers and that kind of th- sort of teenagers you don't want to meet. So you were um, confident then? I was confident. I think I was confident from when I was f- four or five. My mum's a very loud funny person my dad's not but i think i got it from all her family actors and worked in theater and dancing and all that kind of thing so i think there was just a bit of that in the dna you feel you had something to say no i just wanted to say something (laughs) (laughs) more the other way around i I actually i didn't have anything to say I, i wanted to be heard yeah I wanted people to listen to me, but I think it, that was just obnoxiousness. I didn't have. I could. I was. I think I could be funny about stuff, but it wasn't. I didn't have a. I wasn't super politically aware. Sure. I wasn't super socially aware. I liked entertainment, you know, I'd, I'd, um, and the idea of entertainment more than the idea of spreading a, tr- a truth sure um and 
Do you show off? Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Um, Still a show off? Uh, less so, but I try and limit it to when people have paid to be in the room sure. and that's the contract of, between performer and audience. They've signed up for it. Then. Exactly. As an I'm older, I'm not trying to put anyone through that. But so we, we started being at these club nights because we were playing gigs from age 16, age 17, which again at the time, I didn't realize how young it was. Um, and we started, especially this club night White Heat that was every Tuesday and had three bands every Tuesday, which is is crazy looking back to to be able to you know find a good two or three bands every week, let alone ones that people are excited about. But also explains probably why we managed to get gigs at places like sure. that because they needed to fill the spaces and again that was a way to get people down before the club night so what we thought was this golden opportunity was as much a way for them to get a load of teenagers in the building mm -hmm. and girls I guess not that that was probably I don't know if that was on their mind but our, we were good at getting people to places so that was probably as helpful to uh, attractive to the promoters as our music which was very under rehearsed and probably sounded like something like Lonnie Donegan or something looking back because we didn't even have guitar pedals so everything was a clean mm -hmm. guitar sound we didn't really know about guitar pedals it was lots of clean guitar and jingly jangly not in a good way not in a kind of it was exciting though right it was exciting I think if you were either a teenager or excited by teenagers being dumb on stage um uh, we were quite over the top and would do things like go to charity shops and just buy loads of stuff to put on stage like children's ball pools and inflatables and I was kind of of the opinion that a gig had to be more than a gig had to be some sort of show but sometimes at the expense of the music which wasn't very well rehearsed Aside from the expense of the music do you still subscribe to that? That it should be more, you know. I d are you, do. You, do you value a lot of perform? You know, or do you put a lot of value on performance? I think I must do because, I, when I look back on gigs that we play now, if I look at photos or talk about them afterwards, it's clear that there's an element of performance that you don't get at all gigs, and that. So I think I don't think it's necessarily better. You know. Julian Casablancas barely takes even takes the microphone out of the mic stand. So it's not to say that you have to be Freddie Mercury at Live Aid, but I think I've always responded to showmen, show people, should Absolutely. I say? Um, but I think it depends on the music. You know, I don't think it would. I don't think Tom York jumping off the dress circle into a, a crowd surfing would work as well as it does when say Yanis from Falls mm -hmm. or whatever does it and I and I think it depends on the music and how that music should be delivered I've seen you know My Bloody Valentine play relatively static performances but with music that feels like it could move for miles you know to, and I've seen it probably did and it probably for miles because if you go and see him your ears hurt exactly <laughs> and I've seen Nick Cave you know go into the audience the, everywhere from the O2 to HMV. I think I think I was attracted. I was, def, was definitely attracted to 
characters who would maybe blur the line almost between theatre and, and music. There's uh, performances that hook me. And when I first saw, I first saw Las Vegas and I, I saw the performance, the drama in it, I was like, I'm interested in yeah. this right from the very off. Uh, and the same when I saw the front man of the band you're about to say in his previous band. Um, but the first time I saw you perform was on Jules Holland. Right. Um, and it was Fade Away. Yeah. And I, I'm a huge Nick Cave fan. I love the drama. Yeah. I love to see people hit these moments where they drop to their knees. And, and I saw that. Yeah. And, and I was like, I'm on board with this. Oh, good. And and it was. It was it was a performance. Well, and also in, in certain cases like then, because, you know, we, we played Jules Holland. We probably only played less than 10 gigs under our belt as that band. It, for me, sometimes performance hides a lack of preparation. Right. You can get away if you're not the most, you know, some bands stay in their room and play and play. And some bands want to play gigs before they're necessarily yeah. ready. You know, if, if, if you get asked to go on Jules Holland, you're not going to say no. Yeah. Do we sound much better Years later, yes, but you know that's just how how it goes. It's it's quite exciting to capture that Definitely. that sense of excitement. But I think if I'm if I look behind me and see if I'm forgetting a bit of a song or looking around and seeing someone not know what's going to happen, then you up the performance to cut. And I, and I've all that's always been you know our, our first band we didn't we weren't even Les Incompetents we weren't even sure of the song structures when we played it was only when we came into the studio that we actually had to work out what they were and that's not to say we were good at improvising and following each other we weren't we would have people sing what they thought was when the chorus was going to come in and it wasn't the chorus and it it was a bit of a a mess and to me that's been a a part of it it may be sometimes i worry that's a sense of entitlement where you think you can you think you can perform something that isn't fully uh, perfected and get away with it, whereas some people would have to work twice as hard yeah. to get to get heard like that. So sometimes I look back and think, oh, that we shouldn't have been being let on these stages. Someone should have been, if it was the 60s, someone would have been shouting at us yeah. backstage or whatever. But then what better way of capturing a certain youthful totally. spirit than just going and, totally. and messing around. And that's, and that's what I do. The, the, the reason I lament the loss of venues and clubs the most is I actually think it provided so many opportunities. This, and this country has a, has a huge history of entertainment from high culture to light entertainment, probably even more so on the light entertainment spectrum from the history of, you know, the influence we've had on pop music to you know the working men's clubs you know hearing someone like gary barlow's desert island discs talking about coming through having to learn songs having to tape songs off the radio to learn them on keyboard so he can play them at the working men's clubs that night between you know jim davidson and some other like racist comedians coming on that to me is is a huge part of British culture, not the racist comedians, but mm. they're of that lineage. You know, Blackpool yeah. enter the entertainment, mm. and and sometimes that would mean subpar quality, just because it, it used to have to happen on mass. We Completely. would we we'd probably even going back to the medieval times and before that. And I, and I often I often say that I 
I, I, I think it maybe made more sense before entertainers started becoming rich and famous that they were actually the lowest in society rather than the highest and that yeah. you'd have you know court jesters and loot players being bottled and yeah. have vegetables thrown at them because they were there to mm. entertain or or music was a a form of communication and catharsis but it wasn't something to be put on a pedestal and i and i think at its best and again it goes back to the church thing or even musicians who play just to play whether that be you know or orchestrally or certain jazz stuff where it's not so much about the audience but more the playing i think it is a great catharsis if, if people come to watch um great but it's also i would say to young people who are who are in, ever interested in doing it if you get a chance to do it just doing it for the sake of doing it is as good a reason as you could ever Completely. need, whether that's making songs or just shouting through a microphone for 10 yeah. seconds or 10 minutes or 10 hours. Everyone, yeah. I feel like everyone should get a, a chance to do that. And we should mention that one of the best bits of shouting through a microphone yes. is, uh, is your song choice. Yes, this is the Walkman, the rat, and as far as catharsis in music, especially broadly under the indie music umbrella goes, this is um, about as good as it gets for me. I don't think, I don't think this song has been bettered in terms of the message it manages to get it across in both the simplicity of its message and the energy behind that. And I know for a fact that a lot of indie artists and songwriters of a certain generation all feel the same way. Um, I know, you know, people like Alex Turner or whatever, the people who, this song is like its own, the Walkmen are a cult band, but this song has its own cult. I think most people who've heard it and like that kind of music appreciate that even with the bands that were far bigger than them, everything from Strokes to Kings of Leon to White Stripes, whatever. No one quite boiled it down to a, a few minutes quite like this. The urgency of this record is unreal. Yes, and it's got and it's a fantastic song anyway. And then the middle eight and its lyrics and I won't repeat them now. You'll either know it or you'll get to hopefully. You should switch this off and listen to it. Absolutely. Um, if you've never heard the yeah. woman uh, rat, then I don't know why you're listening to this. It's just, I've, you know, I've, I've seen people cry on the dance floor to this song. It's, it's, and you know the words are meant because you couldn't sing them like this and them not be meant. And I think it captures so many emotions, including, I think, a fear of... Um, Missed opportunity. I, I I interviewed the the Walkman once when I worked at MTV Two, and I said to them, I don't know, you know, why is this song not the biggest song of all time? And I think they were playing the Scala or something on what would have been their fourth or fifth album, and they, you know, they they didn't look like they were happy to be asked that question. You know, they were saying, yeah, well. I think they just come off of a tour of playing in Europe where they said certain they got certain venues and found out they're playing in restaurants or whatever. And this, yeah. you know, and obviously they'd been 
Jonathan Fire Eater before who who you mentioned and if anything and again good if if you're listening and haven't read the book um Meet Me in the Bathroom but are a fan of this music um you'll see that their first band Jonathan Fire Eater were extremely influential in that world but this is a song I've, you know I haven't been to a friend's wedding where this song hasn't been played um and I think it's it's as much an anthem for our generation of, of indie fans and the kind of tail end of it, or even the sense that it was over before it began, like so many great things that, despite all the stuff that came later, between after 2001 to 2003, sorry, or four, that was kind of about it for the real excitement, sure. even though you'd have great bands or even bands going on to do so much better later, like the Killers and Kings of Leon, who didn't, who were only just starting out around that time. Um, but it's just, it it works, and a lot of a lot of the songs around then don't, even a, a lot of the best Stroke songs, you know, they sound like they're recorded on a potato and performed by. Um, drum machines or whatever yeah. this is even like a, I've seen good drummers ply, try and play this and find it more difficult than they'll think because yeah. everyone, everyone's just going for it just watch the video if you've never seen it because you you just can't not look at the drummer it's it's ridiculous isn't yeah. it it's, uh, it's everything about that performance that it's just for real isn't it yeah it's like an incredible record and I've got to be honest that I'm not a huge fan of the other stuff by the yeah. moment. I think it's okay, but I don't think they've done anything else that, in my no. opinion, gets anywhere near. I, I, the I felt for them as well because you write a song that good, you kind of can't live Where'd it you down. Go from there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then there, there's good stuff on the other albums, and there's a lot of great lyrics. And I think he's great, but again, it's something that, a bit like the tragic comedy we were talking about earlier, that the sense of pathos is in there, and and a lot of my favourite bands, and especially my favourite bands growing up, I look back and I'm like. Wow, so much sadness. Same as Julian Casablanca's. Clearly, someone, people who never really got to enjoy it in a way, even though they had it all, which is often the way of the self-indulgent artists. But it's then, even if they were out partying, there was, you could tell, there's just a sadness there, and they got to be. You know, we get to live that sadness through them, sure. and only have to be feel it for the three minutes or whatever we're yeah. listening to the song, rather than the thirty years or whatever twenty years that build up to that three minutes. Track six. Track six. Favorite art. Uh, favorite song from an artist from your home county. Um, well, I had picked the streets to turn the page mm -hmm. because that, to me, is so synonymous with London and again another bit of growing up but I realised he's actually though he's born in Barnet um, he was he's more of a Birmingham artist and I think Birmingham listeners would yeah. be annoyed with me for trying to claim one of theirs but in terms of a quintessentially British piece of music that transcends um, so much of the British experience I don't think transcends the word I'm looking for but you know encompasses and Pierce is you know, something that I think there'll be lines in that that everyone can connect to. Um, I thought then I should go for something a bit more local. So The Clash, White Man and Hammersmith Palais 
which I don't listen to The Clash much anymore, but again, going back to those early experiences of finding music on going to HMV Tottenham Court Road, I remember wanting to buy a band T-shirt of something like The Strokes or The White Stripes, but obviously the the, the shops on Tottenham Court Road, the kind of surprise, surprise-esque places, I, I don't know if they're still there, Oxford Street... Um, only sold classic band t-shirts sure. usually skewing more towards metal and punk as well and i remember going wa- wanting to buy a t-shirt and seeing the smiths one and thinking he looked a bit like elvis thinking oh they must be a 1950s band um <laughs> uh and or there was like slipknot which you know stuff i liked but i wasn't that i wasn't a, a kind of goth or whatever and had to settle on a clash t-shirt because they were basically the only band I'd heard of and quite liked that they were selling that wasn't the Beatles, which wasn't cool to to yeah. wear as a 13-year-old. And I remember I got the compilation, I think it's called, it called The Story of the Clash, that was just, you know, a random double CD compilation. But White Man Hammersmith's Palais struck me because it was the first song I'd seen the title that had a place near where I was from because my family live in Ells Court and Hammersmith's just down the road. So I was like, oh, wow, this is, this one's a bit of me, and and at the t- I, at the t- I only learning far later the like deeper meaning of the lyrics. But I would just remember getting excited, excited by the politics of it, even though I didn't fully understand it. Now I know that it was actually to him complaining about how a, a reggae gig he saw was too commercial, and then writing a reggae song about it, which you know no one. A would get away with these days, but they wouldn't even try. Like it's just quintessential Joe Strummer kind of stuff. But I remember, you know, the, the lines like "white youth, black youth, better find another solution," and the, all the um, bits like if Adolf Hitler turned up today, they'd send a limousine anyway. And and which I think again for the t- a sense of prescience that here we are, forty, fifty years later, and people. I think our our lyrics have got softer overall, especially what people in in bands play it safer because it's almost like oh well they need to they don't want to rock the boat. It's a bit like that Liam Gallagher thing saying you know rock stars may as well be dentists if they're scared to open their mouths or whatever, and and it's and there that that bit that he's like oh in their Burton suits how they think it's funny turning rebellion into money which I think he later said was about the jam but I remember thinking when we started Spectre um, I was like let's use that that's our our mantra you know, Burton suits turning rebellion into money I was like that's what we want to do <laughs> that's a um, good vibe I think I only went to Hammersmith Palais once before it got knocked down or turned into something else there was some sort of NME gig there. But again, hearing, watching the, the documentaries and films about The Clash and hearing songs like White Riot, even people talking about, you know, um, the relationships between um, different social and like groups and white people, black people, it, it was, there wasn't many other people doing it even 30 years later, let alone really getting there. Yeah. hands dirty with the social commentary of it and it it almost uh, had a sense of like 
even though there's a lot of irony in the Clash's lyrics, it almost has a sense of some of the 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 worst bits of political commentary now, like um, uh, who's the big guy that um, vaguely alt right sort of commentator that makes it people think about like oh that. Tommy Robinson. Not not English. The American one is not as extreme oh, as that. Um, uh, oh God. Um, the one that Mumford Sons were pictured in the studio with. <laughs> you know, it's what I mean. Um, oh God. Um, the one who's like about men's rights yeah, and. Yep, 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 yep. We'll need to remember his name and drop it in here. Um, but in a way, like this, this predicted that sentiment. You know, um, obviously that it's the. White Riot isn't is in no is not of a, a, a racist song, but they were already predicting a certain sentiment of what you know disillusionment, where you begin to where people start blaming other disillusioned voices because yeah. they feel like they have had more of a chance to speak out than the, even though they have. I I, th- I think it's just it's interesting that. Um, they were kind of willing to go there lyrically about so many things, um, the the clash, and re- in really quite an incisive way, and, and make it at, never at the expense of the melody or the performance. And often now, politically charged bands that are embarrassing or will never get past the you know Camden underworld, yeah, because they can't they can't deliver their message without it actually somehow affecting the quality of of the music, let alone do it with banger after banger and make it seem effortless. And though sometimes I latterly find, can find Joe Strummer a bit of an annoying character Mm -hmm. at points, the four of them together definitely had a, had a certain magic that when it comes to London and a London, London, not just a message, but using the, people and places of London as, as amazing scenery for the music. I think they've been quite um, unparalleled Completely since. Agree. Completely agree. Last track, Fred? Last track. This is one... I had lots of different options f- for this, but this is one that, again, in a completely different way... I'm trying to remember what's this word for... not That's not like foreboding, but like predicting, but... Omin- like an ominous prediction because um, this is another one of those mm-hmm. um, Kate Bush Deeper Understanding which seems to predict um, in the same way that uh, David Bowie did in an interview with Jeremy Paxman which if you haven't watched Google Jer- Jeremy Paxman David Bowie internet you it, it was interesting. To, it's interesting to me that um, it was generally artists, especially the you know clever, deep-thinking artists, who actually predicted the impact that the internet and computers would have when so many people, as Paxman said in this interview, oh, the internet's just a tool, isn't it? It's just something we're going to use. They didn't didn't appreciate how all-encompassing it would be. And this song, if you if you haven't heard it. It's 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 not unknown because it's obviously Kate Bush, but it's one of her lesser known, slightly lesser known songs. is is about someone buying a computer program from an advert in a magazine, basically 
falling in love with a um, computer mm -hmm. um, program, but it's 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 just about she sings very seriously and emotionally about the power of um, machines and computer programs. Again, you know, thirty years before and uh, anyone before we got there and, and even now if it would be a prescient song if it was released now we're we're now only at the point where i think we're starting to be comfortable with people including lyrics about the internet which for ages i think it always seemed like a novelty mm -hmm. but now you've got pop acts or you know from the 1975 or whoever i always try to it's happened in rap music a lot more but i always try to be honest with lyrics in lyrics about um, the role technology plays without wanting to be cheesy and be like beware your phone you know everyone looking yep. at your phone it's become almost a cliche to to mention but we still don't mention it it's we roll our eyes when when an adult says an adult or you know an older person says all these kids looking at their phone so we, we don't really we don't talk about it as much I, as I, I think we should it's we're at a point where the the technology has far out run our ability to understand technology's impact on us um and so i'm always impressed when you realize that not only are the, have the signs been there but also there have been artists talking about this and in this song it's not it doesn't seem novelty it's also it's a brilliant song in and of itself and like you know that with that unique Kate Bush quality again has a timeless feel and a vocal performance that is feels deeply meant sure. and and isn't just even though I think there are similarly prescient songs like Video Killed the Radio Star or whatever this doesn't have the doesn't have the kind of digitalized novelty yeah. of some of those songs that are about a, the dark yeah. future and also she's talking about um alienation and and the, 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 I don't know the lyrics might be like do you know feeling sad like do you are you feeling sad is like as and using the this outlet of technology to feel connection to feel emotional connection which we've all become increasingly reliant on to the extent that you know if someone phones me I tend to not pick it up and text back because the idea of a phone conversation seems almost intimate um when we could just speak all day without speaking or having to hear someone's voice all very um cliched things but they certainly weren't cliched when kate bush was singing Completely. about them and she's just that one of those artists who you know whether she's um referencing wuthering heights or hounds of love or computer programs it's her music's out of time and again someone who um is an absolute beyond you know national treasure is such a cheesy phrase but like a a someone that i don't know if it they have to die before they're appreciated um i'd feel kind of a similar way about nick cave but i feel like he gets he yeah. gets a bit more of the adulation i guess he's made many more albums and maybe i don't know if for her it's because she's female she you know seemingly disappeared for a long time but i feel like we're not yet and i know the people who love her as proven by that gig she did those gigs she did at hamster with apollo a few years back and what people were willing to pay to get in the room 
her fans take her seriously. But I'm hoping, I'm sure a time will come when her her music is as is regarded as seriously as any of the, you know, bands of the... Completely. And we touched on performance and, you know, and, and Kate performing and, and, and iconic front people. And, I mean, never question Kate Bush's performance. Exactly. Uh, and I think, I think there's something to be said for the artists who know to keep their... Perf- not to keep their performance on the stage, but no, to to say less off stage, yeah. and maybe if maybe if someone if if Joe Strummer had been less vocal on stage, we could we would be able to keep our memories to to just the, the those moments on stage that do transcend. Sure. Kate Bush is another like she'd you know she did one interview and accidentally almost gave off the thing that she'd voted Tory she later t- made it clear that she wasn't but you know again I'd rather think of her as this ethereal Completely. spirit than someone who's picking up Theresa May just on account of her being a woman or whatever but you know m- men have got away with far worse and not been hung out to dry and god knows you know if Thank God John Lennon's dead, or God knows the sort of abominable character he would be right now. I mean, or whoever. But you know, there's there's lots of. Uh, look at Morrissey. You know, it's someone who I'm still struggling. With exactly. Exactly. That, that we would. That I wouldn't even want to. I'm one more comment away from having a lot of laser surgery removed. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> well, there, there you go, and and you know that will. I'm sure there'll be people of our generation who'll turn out that way as well yeah. so you kind of it's I, do, I, I still think we can enjoy all of I was having a conversation with this about this with someone at Glastonbury about um, Morrissey and his lyrics and whether we can still enjoy them and whether the clues were there you know then Ex- exactly like old, um, but I think that's part of the I don't not to say it's part of the artist's journey to turn into a cantankerous racist, but we have to appreciate that people change. Some for the better, some for the worse, um, and some for the worse, and then the better, and some for the better than the yeah, worse. So it's you know to to sign up to being a fan, and there's lots of stuff I'm a fan of that you have to go with. The chair, you know, and, and work doesn't. I don't really know where I'm going with this, but that's part of the the life of being a yeah. fan. And and when I'm thinking about music, it's it's generally not as a musician, but as a fan. Yeah. And that's it. That's part of it. And 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 that's part of the aging process for yourself to realize that someone who was a certain way when you were 18 yeah. is a different way when you're 36, 48, yeah. 56, whatever. Um, and you know, if the, the same as the people who you listen to your own music, you think, well, do you have a responsibility to them? You know, we we wrote a song. We had a song called "Born in the EU" that um, we on, we only ever released as a demo. But around the time of the EU referendum, where I felt staunchly like a Remain voter. Not to say I wouldn't vote Remain now, but by the end, 
by the time we got to the point where it was finally done, I did think, well, looking back, I could have been, been part of the problem that demonised Leave voters as this, um, you know, dumb mass of closed-minded people and actually through through coming at them from such a staunch point and not necessarily engaging in conversation might have be what um, helped embolden people with of their opinions because they weren't being taken seri yeah. seriously. Not to say that some of them don't have very dumb reasons for voting the way they do, but then I probably have dumb reasons for voting for um, other things, you know. I thought free broadband's a good idea, I still do. But um, uh, I don't know how we got there, but it, <laughs> it's interesting that the, 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 the life of a music fan, as anyone like yourself who has any artists or lyrics tattooed to them will know, and often... Um, I don't want to use the word fans. Listeners of our music have got in touch asking if I'll write lyrics in my handwriting so they can get them tattooed, and I almost always refuse unless they're there in front of me because I don't think it's this is just in case a you good idea. Old <laughs> well, I'm sure I'll become a cantankerous old something. I'll I'll definitely the lyrics will stop being relevant to their lives. I mean, one guy has my face tattooed to his neck, and you know, I think about him often. Yeah. As I fall asleep and I hope his neck's okay. What's coming up for Spectre, Fred? Um, we are going back to the conversation of physical versus digital. We're excited because over the last few years we've released three EPs. Well, what's coming up for three EPs with the 12th song we're releasing in the next few months. Um, or probably around the time this comes out, actually. Um, we're going to be putting those three EPs on a vinyl compilation which is our first physical thing since our second album. And then we'll be going to record an album this summer. So we're trying to write it at the moment. Um, but it's exciting to have a compilation as a fan of compilations and as a fan of bands that have had compilations or at least released enough singles to have compilations of songs that aren't on albums. Yeah. And there's, there's, which used to be more of a thing, especially with B-sides or non-album singles in the case of the Beatles or whatever. I'm excited that we can begin to have a body of work that honours fans' interests, that won't be as simple as album, 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 but now for those who want it, something that compiles music that was made out of the album format, and then shortly after that, another album, and it will mean that anyone who's with us at that point, and it still seems like there's some a new generation of people getting on board, because otherwise we'd have probably split up by now, but every time we kind of think we're about to there's something good happens that keeps us going good and a few people have said oh what's the you know it's what's the the best the secret of long term um you know existing long term as a, as a band or artist and i always say one don't split up and two don't sexually assault anyone and as long as you can do those actually we probably cut that <laughs> 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 Any artist who can manage both of those two will have a, a career, yeah. you know. I mean, that's got to be the best way you can finish a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, if it's all right with you, Fred, I'll I'll tag uh, Spectre and everything when I put this out. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and is, is a website? Uh, well, spectre.co.uk, but search us on anything on Instagram, Twitter. It's just the one word, Facebook. So 
S P E C T O R and yeah, um lots of new music coming. We'll be playing over the summer, Reading and Leeds, various other festivals and then a full UK tour in October, November. So come to a gig if you fancy it. Wonderful. Thanks ever so much, Fred. Great. There you have it. Really, really fun chat that. Uh Fred was a, an absolute gentleman. And uh yep, yeah, please go and uh check out all the stuff that Fred spoke about, go and listen to the, the tracks on the playlist on Spotify. Ensure if you're at the festivals this year, you go and check out Spectre. And just make sure next week you come back and check out the new episode. Have a lovely week. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I've butted in yet again. I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Pod Bible. Now, Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and Acast, and it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a load of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, and there's features on Jade Adams, and there's just an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free so every other month there'll be a new edition out so go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well podbiblemag.com it's off the beat and track podcast on the distraction pieces network keep me stew with him 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.